This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, December 13th. The government's support for a United Nations resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza fuels tensions in the Liberal caucus. The power panel digs into the political fallout. And U.S. President Joe Biden warns Israel is losing international support. I'll speak to the U.S. ambassador to Canada. Plus, the situation in Gaza continues to get worse. I'll ask the Palestinian representative to Canada if she thinks the United Nations vote will make a difference in this war. Israel is pushing ahead with its war in Gaza. The Israeli military is now three months into its operation to dismantle Hamas. More than 18,500 Gazans have been killed so far, according to the Hamas-run Health Authority. Yesterday, the UN General Assembly voted overwhelmingly in favor of a non-binding resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Israel is rejecting that resolution. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told his troops today, quote, we're continuing until the end, until victory, until Hamas is annihilated. Let there be no doubt about this. The United States joined Israel and eight other nations in voting against the UN resolution yesterday. But U.S. President Joe Biden is warning that international support for Israel is eroding in the wake of what he called indiscriminate bombing. David Cohen is the U.S. Ambassador to Canada. Ambassador Cohen, thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. I'd like to start with with your reaction to the vote at the United Nations yesterday. Uh, The United States voted against the ceasefire. Canada and some other uh, G7 allies voted in favor of it. What's your reaction to that? So, look, the United States position is, is very clear here, which is we all want this war to end. We all need this war to end. The continued loss of civilian life is just intolerable and, and unacceptable. Um, but the United States does not believe that a ceasefire is the way to accomplish that objective. There were issues with that resolution. There are things in the resolution the United States agreed with. Um, but the absence of um, the, the absence of an acknowledgement of all of the facts and circumstances just didn't make it possible for the United States to be able to vote for that resolution. I, and I think there's some I think the United States has real credibility here. I mean, I want to remind your 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 viewers that um, it was the leadership of President Biden working together with some other allies, but it was the leadership of President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken that led to the to the uh, week long um, pauses, humanitarian pauses that allowed over a hundred hostages to be freed. Um, that doubled the amount of humanitarian assistance that was go- that was going into Gaza, and the only reason that did not continue was Hamas, not Israel. Mm-hmm. It was Hamas that viol- that breached those agreements and prevented them from continuing. So, the United States comes with credibility and a track record in terms of a commitment of trying to get the hostages freed, trying to limit civilian casualties. 
um, and trying to end the war. It's just that this resolution did not meet the United States objectives for what needed to be said and done. But what about the the bigger picture of what's happening here? Because the president uh, warned yesterday that Israel is losing international support, and and he used the phrase indiscriminate bombing to describe what was happening. Um, But yet you vote against a ceasefire. So if the bombing is indiscriminate, it seems like a ceasefire is a way to stop this, right? Well, the, the problem is it's a unilateral ceasefire. When you're dealing with a terrorist organization like Hamas, that stopping the Israeli bombing is like unilateral disarmament. That's not a way to end the conflict. Let's remember how we got here. We got here as a result of an illegal, horrific terrorist attack by a terrorist organization on Israel. And the United States maintains its condemnation of Hamas. It maintains that Israel has the absolute right to defend itself consistent with international norms and standards. And if they're crossing the line, if they're pursuing military tactics that, that, the, United, that the president thinks are too extreme, then we reserve the right to be able to inform them of that and to say things like the president said. But the antidote to that problem is not to, uh, is not to unilaterally cease fire and to, um, and to allow Hamas to regroup um, and to right. uh, and to and to solidify their positions in the continuing continue shooting rockets into Israel and killing Israelis. You know, when the president uses the phrase indiscriminate bombing, that would suggest he doesn't believe that Israel is conducting itself in accordance with international law because indiscriminate bombing is not something that complies with international law. How should we interpret that phrase from President Biden? So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm comfortable doing that. I'm not even sure I know what indiscriminate bombing means. Sure. Um, and I, you know, obviously I think the president's words speak for themselves. Um, and I think, I think um, they're based on more data than I have access to. But I think that's the solution to let me use a different word. The solution to inappropriate bombing is what the president did, is to call Israel out on that and to continue the advocacy of the president and the secretary of state and Jake Sullivan in trying to cajole Israel into behaving in a, in a more controlled fashion in mm-hmm. fighting this war against Hamas, which they have the absolute right to do. When you look at the, the vote yesterday and the way it broke down, not just on the numbers, but how the G7 went, how NATO went, how the Five Eyes went, uh, e- either voted in favor of the ceasefire or abstained, which seems to align with the president's warnings to Israel that uh, international opinion is shifting away. It also leaves the U.S. a little bit isolated, you know, from some of its core allies uh, on this position. I mean, where do you think this goes based on what we saw in New York? So I don't, I don't think, I don't think um, you can measure isolation um, by this kind of a vote. Because obviously, as I said, the, this war is very troubling. It is very difficult. Um, and everyone wants the war to end. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that may create some votes that, um, that may create some votes that are uncomfortable for the United States, which is so passionately, so passionately believes in its, in its 
allyship and relationship with Israel and with Israel's right to defend itself and to protect itself. Um, but, you know, I think I forget who it is who said this. It may have been John F. Kennedy who said this, but leadership can be lonely. And I don't think Joe Biden or the United States is going to measure the morality of its position or the correctness of its decision and the positions that it is taking by the number of countries who are aligning themselves with the United States in a United Nations vote. I, I, I take your point that Secretary Blinken and others have been pushing Israel, and, and the president made that very clear when, when he went uh, to Jerusalem right. to, to rein it in and, and not fall prey to sort of the anger that he said America uh, experienced a, after 9-11. Uh, but the support is, is still there. The military aid is coming uh, not with conditions, as some people have suggested, that it should be conditioned with. Is there a point where the U.S. support for Israel in terms of supplying it with more military and, and aid does become conditional, do you think? So um, I think that question's above my pay grade. Fair, yeah. Um, and and it, it's, it's, it, it sort of hits two points that make me not want to answer it. One is it's above my pay grade, and the other is it's a bit hypothetical. So we'll, we'll have to see the way this plays itself out. And I look, I mean, the one thing you can say about Joe Biden is he calls it as he sees it. And as you said, I mean, he, before this the UN resolution came up, he warned Israel that the way in which they're conducting the war, let's forget about the words that were yep. used, is running the risk of costing them international support. Um, and that turned out to be prescient in terms of the vote on in terms of the vote on the resolution. And I think I think we can count on President Biden to remain absolutely steadfast in his support of Israel um, because of the justice of these of Israel's cause but also not to be bashful about um, working with Israel and cajoling industry, Israel privately and publicly when necessary to make sure that um, Israel is conducting this war in accordance with international standards. President Biden also uh, reassured the world of his steadfast support for President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine in their fight against Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, but this comes at a time when there is great uncertainty about whether enough military aid will be supplied by the U.S. Congress to, to help them through the second winter and continue with this fight. How worried are you right now? President Zelensky did not get the response he was looking for from the Congress yesterday. This seems like a, a difficult time. Well, um, so I'm a little separated and removed from this. I'm not in, I'm not in the United States sure. now, not in Washington. But I think, it, I mean, I've, I've I had the opportunity to, meet and talk with a number of Republican senators um, at the Halifax Security Forum this year. And from everything I've heard and I've seen, there remains strong bipartisan support for military assistance to Ukraine. What is holding this up has nothing to do with the United States' support for Ukraine. By the way, also holding being held up is the, is the military aid package Israel. for Israel. This has nothing to do with Ukraine, nothing to do with Israel. I think there's just widespread political support for that aid. Um, we have to sort through, or President Biden and the Senate and the House have to sort through other political issues to clear the way for that aid to be granted. And so um, I, I have to believe that that will happen. It may not happen by the end of this year, 
but I have to believe that that will happen in an expeditious fashion and that the military aid will continue to flow. There's a shift in Europe, too, right? The European Union is kind of struggling, and, and Viktor Orban of, of Hungary is kind of putting up obstacles. Um, where do you think uh, global opinion is on this? Like, there, there's, there's obviously political support for Ukraine. Certainly President Biden is steadfast in this. But fatigue does set in. Political agendas do play a role, and, and we're kind of seeing that in the two big supporters, financially and militarily, of Ukraine right now. Yep. So war is really tough. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound trite when I say it. War is really tough. And I don't think it's a surprise that the longer, the longer a war goes, the more memories might fade about what the causes of the war were, how we got to that point. But at the end of the day, I sort of believe in the, um, in the, in the prevailing wisdom of our of democratic countries around the world of understanding what's at stake in Ukraine and what's at stake in Israel versus Hamas which is support of democracies support of support of governments who stand for justice human rights and democracy versus terrorist organizations or or governments who um, stand for for terrorism or um, or totalitarianism, or um, are not friends of, of human rights. And so I think in the end, this will play itself out in a way where the appropriate military aid is provided. It's just, the, as you point out, it's just the, there's a bit of fatigue, and that mm-hmm. can diminish the enthusiasm for the cause, but I think there's still a general recognition of the importance of the cause and there isn't any doubt about wh- what side all these countries want to be on at the end of the day. When, when you talk about that polarization sort of between democracy and, and autocracy that exists globally, one of the countries that we're wondering where they fit right now is India. Uh, because we have had issues in this country with the prime minister uh, making the allegation that maybe agents of the Indian government were involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen and then the indictments uh, we saw in, in your country. How do countries like Canada and the United States approach India with these allegations on the table and its importance in sort of the collective Indo-Pacific strategy as a counterweight to China? Well, the concluding line of that question is the key question. India is just an absolutely key player in both of our countries' Indo-Pacific strategies. India is the largest democracy in the world, and they are a democracy. And so we, both of us, both of our countries have to figure out how to work with India and to keep them in the fold of democracies versus autocracies. I think, um, I think the United States is, is doing a very good job of um, working with India. I think, um, I mean, I think the way in which the indictments were, fr- the U.S. indictments in the Southern District of New York were phrased and the way in which they were rolled out and the conversations that, the diplomatic conversations that the United States and India have has demonstrated the power and the strength of diplomacy and a relationship in managing what had to be disappointing news to India and had to be news that they weren't comfortable with. But um, in response to those indictments, um, the you know the Indian government has responded responsibly at this point. At least they're certainly cooperating. They're launching their own investigation to try and get to the bottom of the allegations that are in the indictments. And I think that is evidence of, um, of, the, 
appropriate way in which the United States, the delicate and appropriate way in which the United States is trying to manage that very important relationship. This is a final point. It's a different dynamic when you're a middle power like Canada versus you know a superpower like the United States and how you can approach an enormous country uh, like India. But when you see the allegations laid out and the links being spelled out, does that lessen their trust and reliability as a partner in these larger strategic um, interests. So you, by the there, you mean India's trust yeah. in reliability? Yeah. Or, or your trust in them, the United States trust in them, Canada's trust in them. I, um, look, I, I think that the, I think that the United States continues to believe in the potential of India to be a valuable and constructive partner um, in in the Indo-Pacific, and if we. If we look at this on the spectrum of autocracy versus democracy, um, we view them as a very important ally, and I don't think we're discouraged at all in our ability to be able to continue to work with India. David Cohen, U.S. Ambassador to Canada, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on, and happy holidays. You too, sir. Canada has joined international calls for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. In the face of an unfolding humanitarian catastrophe, we continue to call for a return to humanitarian pauses. We're going to keep uh, participating in urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire. That's the Prime Minister there officially speaking the word ceasefire for the first time in relation to the Israel-Hamas conflict since this war began. This after Canada voted in favor of of, of a ceasefire at the United Nations General Assembly. The move was a major shift for Canada, which is a long-standing practice of voting with Israel on similar UN resolutions or abstaining. For reaction to the ceasefire resolution, Mona Abu-Amara is Chief Representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada, and she joins me now. Mona, it's good to see you again. Thank you for coming in. Good to see you, David. Were you surprised? surprised by this move yesterday uh, when Canada did this? Um, I I can't say surprised, but was uh, very content. We had uh, um, uh, an eventful uh, week uh, before the uh, UN resolution vote. We had uh, a delegation uh, come on Saturday of uh, from uh, that was that emerged from the um, Islamic and Arab League so the meeting summit with Melanie Jolie and the Prime and Minister. The Prime Minister right. Yes, it was a very um, good conversation. And um, what came after it was the logical um, explanation to the meetings and to a future that we are looking for right now. W- were those countries, was the Palestinian Authority ambassador, or foreign minister, excuse me, I believe it was, it's given an indication at this meeting that Canada would be doing this? No, no, no. It was just that we felt that the future that we will see uh, would include uh, more of uh, um, like the the, impl- the implica- implementation of uh, the two-state solution more than just to talk about it. And that was uh, just natural to come out and and see that Canada is moving towards something that would achieve that as a step. So what do you make of this development and and its meaning and and its potential impact? Because Canada had abstained last time because there was no condemnation of Hamas in the resolution. There was no condemnation for Hamas in this resolution yesterday, though they did support an amendment to put it in. But they still did it, along with a lot of NATO countries, G7 Mm -hmm. countries, Five Eyes countries. That's why I'm telling you that it, it was a natural um, transformation after a lot of uh, meetings that Canada and all of those countries had and, and, and the summit um, and the meeting uh, with uh, the ministers. Uh, 
Canada, I, I don't think that Canada's uh, stand changed. And that's why I, um, I feel that all the things that are coming now out against the prime minister or um, the foreign minister as if their whole um, outlook on this thing changed. And I can tell you as a Palestinian, that's not the case. Well, they had not called for a ceasefire uh, un until yesterday. They had to call for a humanitarian pause to allow for hostage exchanges, uh, yes. for example. But th they, they seem to have gone further in my read of it. Do you not see it that way? Exactly. But that, to go forward, because what was before is a way to be stuck. We see Israel's aggression um, to be torturous and inhumane in its nature. And it puts all of those countries, especially liberal democracies, in this place where they can't uh, defend support to the outcome, as, as uh, you said during your interview about the uh, uh, indiscriminate bombing. Right. Because, uh, as of now, we have uh, more than 20,000. And if you count the, the people, uh, people under the rubble, it's 24. And just saying that there are people under the rubble and for now is, is uh, uh, atrocious. So a change needed to be happening. And we see on the ground that uh, Netanyahu is going full force in his war, not just on Gaza, but on uh, in the West Bank and mm -hmm. in East Jerusalem as well. So it's a plan to continue the genocide and ethnic cleansing. And the international community figured out that the two-state solution is uh, the only way out now for peace. Uh, on that, uh, we, we, we have heard from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu today. And he says they're not going to stop. They're going to continue until the very end, until they achieve this objective. And the U.S. continues to support them while cautioning them and, and criticizing them uh, about indiscriminate bombing. Uh, and we've also seen uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom reject the concept of a two-state solution today. And I think in Canada, the ambassador to Canada was on the show last night saying, at this point, it's, it's not achievable. So given Israel's reaction to this, what impact do you think this will have on, on, on the current state of the conflict and any kind of a conversation about peace? So if you talk about just a resolution in the General Assembly, it uh, cannot achieve on its own anything right. because uh, Israel, as it's doing right now, would say, I don't care and I'm going to continue. Um, in in uh, 2016, there was a, a Security Council resolution 2334 that passed as well and uh, it didn't do anything. So. Uh, what we are hoping for is that this is not it, that this is part of a package to achieve peace for the Palestinians and for Israelis, then that's where Canada comes uh, in the play. But, but what could that be? Uh, I mean, Israel is, is determined to persist. Uh, the U.S. is not going to put conditions on this military aid, and even with their criticism of the way the Netanyahu government and the IDF are conducting this, they remain steadfast in their support of Israel and its right to self-defense. So what could come next that could alter the course of that and get it to where you want it to be? Yeah, so, so the international community is concerned about Israel's safety and Israel's right to, um, to, to defend itself, which Ultimately, we, we, we refuse the premise of uh, this whole um, outlook on things because the oppressor um, is not the one that needs uh, defending, it's the oppressed. But uh, if you like take the, these two paths, we want this nonsense and madness and atrocities that are happening in Gaza to stop. And uh, if we can get there because the international community is... Um, realizing that this war is causing uh, Israel 
more pain than to the security that they care about, uh, then let, let it be. And that's what we're hearing on the international uh, sphere, that Israel has tried to, do, to uh, bring security through war throughout uh, modern history, and it did not achieve that. So maybe peace now um, and, and, and just accountability will do it. Peace takes uh, equal partners. And that's, that's part of the challenge that yeah. Israel and supporters of Israel lay on the table. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the videos that I have. The leadership of Hamas saying October 7th was a rehearsal and they'll do it again and again and again. And the resolution calls for them to also stop fighting and to unconditionally and immediately release the hostages. I know you're not part of Hamas. Do you have any expectation that Hamas could ever or would ever comply with these demands given its actions, its history and its, and its purpose? Um, David, it's, um, you're saying that they're saying Hamas said and Hamas did and then partners. Hamas is not part of the government. Understood. It's not uh, part of the PLO, which represents the Palestinian people. So when Israel comes and says that it, would, it doesn't have a partner, that's another excuse. It had that uh, a long time ago, for a long time, to not actually move on on the uh, within the peace process until it was um, it lost its uh, edge and nobody believed in it anymore uh, and and that's because it was talking about the um, uh, Hamas and uh, Fatah uh, being against each other and that uh, the any leadership is not speaking for everyone so they wanted a leader to speak for Hamas at that point and now Israel is saying this will happen by Hamas but the leadership is not Hamas, so the leadership is the partner I, I, that sits I, I, I on the table. I understand that, but, but Hamas is, is nominally the target of, of the military operation. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the resolution in Canada's position, you know, as articulated by the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister, is they want Hamas to stop fighting, they want Hamas to release uh, uh, the hostages, and, and my sense from listening to the leadership of Hamas in their videos is they have no interest in doing that. So uh, I just wonder if you think, like, Israel will not stop until Hamas stops, is, is what Israel says. Do you think Hamas will stop under any circumstances right now when a lot of the leadership <coughs> isn't even in Gaza? It's in other parts of the world. Yeah, um, Israel will not stop. It's not about Hamas. It's not about any other organization. It's not about anything Palestinian. Israel won't stop because Israel is an occupation that wants to continue its plan. And its plan is not in Gaza alone. Uh, we forget what's happening in uh, the, the West Bank. Um, the the s settlers are pushing people, they're, they're scaring them and asking them to leave to Jordan. Uh, we have uh, the leadership in, in, um, in Israel saying that anything would happen, we are ready to do right. what we're doing in Gaza in West Bank. So this war is existential. It's on the existential right of uh, being a Palestinian. I, I understand the, the long and difficult history of this, and Canada, the United States, and others have criticized the Netanyahu government for what Canada and the U.S. have called extremist settlers uh, in the West Bank. But the ceasefire resolution is specific to the ongoing conflict in Gaza. And uh, Israel has said um, they're not going to stop until Hamas stops. So I'm not asking you to speak for Hamas. I just your opinion of it as someone far more versed in, in the, the reality of that part of the world than I am, if you think they could do that or would do that, because it seems to me they will not, that they want to persist. Um, I, I, as you said, I can't speak for them, but what I um, expect is uh, this resolution talking about um, 
giving life to mm -hmm. people uh, who are under this uh, slaughter, genocide and ethnic cleansing for 68 days. So this alone should be the goal of, um, of that resolution. And that's why Canada came aboard, because it felt that at this point, it's enough to have all these casualties that are happening. So who stops first is a game between uh, the two. And uh, mainly Israel is the one responsible because Israel is the occupier that needs to stop doing its atrocities. Uh, this conflict has caused so much uh, social upheaval in this country and division in this country. You see it playing out in the big cities of Canada and we've seen a lot of Israelis and, and Canadian Jews say Canada voting for this resolution is, is a betrayal of Israel and a slap in the face to a lot of Canadian Jews who, who like uh, Palestinians and, and Muslims and Arabs in this country, have endured a lot of hate uh, over the 68, 70 days, as you talked about. How do you think Canada's decision to do this will affect things here in terms of what you're seeing and the people you're speaking with in your community? So I think that if the, the most important part, the, the thing that would bring um, a better future is not j just stop at this resolution. And I don't think that the Canadian leadership decided to just vote yes to this and then leave uh, the sphere. It, it has for sure, and I'm sure, uh, a bigger picture on this. And, and for me, I'm telling you, it's the first time that uh, I come and I say they, there is uh, um, hope in finding a solution because when you communicate and when you try to, to figure things out on the ground, people understand that you're doing it for the betterment of for everybody and you're not standing in each uh, time with one side. This resolution has nothing to do uh, with Canada's stance on Israel. It has all um, to do with protecting the lives of innocents that are dying right now, they're being killed and murdered. So for the people, I know I, I have my own community and they're passionate about what they want from Canada. And I know the Israeli community as well has, has shown that. But I wanna tell you something, there's a problem with conflicting um, the Palestinian cause, just cause, um, as something against the Jews and the Jewish, Jewish community. And that has been going on. It's a miscommunication, uh, misinformation that brings more uh, problem than it solves in this uh, situation. Um, it's not, our cause is not religious. Our cause is purely uh, for liberation from occupation and apartheid. And if our occupier oppressor were to be Christian or Muslim, we will still be uh, in the same place and requesting to the international community to help and, and taking its responsibilities. So right now, I think the best thing that we can do for the those communities is to show them that we are doing this because if not, then the hate and the destruction will be much more because right. the more you kill innocent people, the more devastation you'll create, the more, more hate will come with it. Okay, so, so on that, and, and just, uh, I, you say that, and, and I believe you when you say that to me. We know Hamas has in its founding articles the elimination of the state of Israel and essentially genocidal principles against the Jews. We do hear chants and protests of from the river to the sea that a lot of supporters of Israel you know, interpret as genocidal uh, because this, these are you know, the origin of that phrase is not as a lot of people explain it today. So given that context... 
how do you get to a piece here if, if that is the, you know, the founding principles of an organization like Hamas uh, that has vowed to continue fighting uh, no matter what? A couple of things to unpack. Um, we are, at this point, we're not really looking for peace per se. Mm. Uh, Palestinians are looking for justice. And what I think is that once you can achieve justice for the Palestinians, then you will see a different future for its neighbors as well. On the revert, on the phrase, um, I know how people interpret it, and I know how people um, uh, explain it. But David, these are people uh, who are saying it in demonstrations. And but Netanyahu came to the UN and and put a a whole map uh, in blue saying that this is Israel. So Netanyahu wiped out every thing of our existence and the world is not talking about it but they're talking about these people who are chanting for their freedom and rights right. from the river to the sea so it's it's and they're saying it's not um meant to be whatever is interpreted in that manner um, and, and used a lot of times as well so um if you want when when you want to put accountability on someone you start with those who are leading, those who are leading and those who are represent the people. Right. And that's Netanyahu and all the other ministers who are calling for wiping off cities and, and, and throwing a, a bomb, a nuclear bomb on the Palestinian people. Right. I, I think increasingly the world is focusing on Benjamin Netanyahu and the nature of his government. Even the president of the United States has suggested maybe he needs a new government to, to, you know, to get to, to a peace in, in that situation. But uh, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. I thank you uh, for your time today. Mona Abu Amaro, Chief Representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada. Thank you thank for you coming for having. in. The federal government's support for a U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza is fueling some tension on Parliament Hill. Uh, the, 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 here's some reaction from Liberal MPs. The U.N. resolution, in my opinion, fell short. It's my obligation as an individually elected MP to speak out when I think that Canada has abandoned its traditional position at the U.N., of support of Israel at a time when Israel's at war. It was the first good step that we saw at UN that Canada voted in favor. I'm really happy to see that uh, that we are standing up for innocent civilians, both on the Palestinian side and the Israeli side. We have these tough conversations, but that's how we get to the positions that we get to, because we are truly listening to everyone and engaging with everyone. All right, so what could the political fallout be from this vote? We're going to bring in the power panel now. Dan Moulton is vice president at Crestview Strategy. He's in Toronto. And here with me in Ottawa, Jordan Likeness is the Canada program manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. And Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of The Hill Times. Uh, good to see you all, gang. Thanks for coming in. Dan, uh, let, let's start with you. Sure. Um, the Liberals have struggled with this as much or more than any of the political parties because they're in government and because of who they represent, where they represent, and the makeup of their particular caucus. They've held it together, but this probably creates some extra challenges for their Jewish MPs or MPs with large Jewish constituencies. How do you think it's going to play out from here? Uh, well, I think you summed it up really well. Like, There's a really healthy debate at caucus uh, on this topic, on the uh, political positions the government needs to take to be able to manage a 
difference of opinion among caucus members, but also a divide in supporters for the party across the country on this issue. And walking that line has been a challenge for the government, and certainly the decision to vote the way they did at the United Nations yesterday was not an easy one. Uh, I do think that it's important to acknowledge that the kind of open debates that's happening in the last 24 hours, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I see as healthy. And I think there have been tough conversations had in private at caucus. Some of the members uh, that disagreed with the outcome of the vote yesterday are expressing that opinion on behalf of their constituents. And I think that's, that's fine. Uh, and I think it's brave. And I think it would be as brave to see some members of the Conservative caucus speak out against their leader's decision to abandon Ukraine. We haven't seen oh. that kind of bravery on that side of the aisle yet. And so, okay. you know, I, I think that would be uh, that would be tantamount to the same kind of behavior, and I think uh, consistent with what we're seeing. Okay, well, we'll, 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 get, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But, but Tim, uh, on, on this point, I mean, we did see... Um, MPs say, I just flat out disagree with this. Uh, Yara Sachs, uh, who is a Jewish member of cabinet with a large Jewish constituency, there was rumors flying all over today that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe she's going to go, we're told she's not, uh, her office mm -hmm. is not. But it, it speaks to the emotions, the tension, and the pressure that the Jewish MPs in this government in particular are feeling right now. Well, but, but also this notion of a healthy debate, that's the way you'd want to frame it. But if you are um, uh, an MP who represents Jewish communities, you're Jewish yourself, you have connections to Israel, family in Israel, there's nothing healthy about this. They feel like, legitimately, I think, that this is a significant betrayal. Um, so the Prime Minister, Dan, everybody has to frame it as a, as a healthy discussion. But if you listen to CJA, the Canadian Institute of Jewish Affairs and others, they're apoplectic about this. This is a significant departure from Canadian foreign policy. And you do have to question if that departure from foreign policy goes beyond just what's happened over the last uh couple of months. Uh, certainly there are, look, there are always calculations in foreign affairs and foreign relations. Let's not be naive. But this one, you know, past liberal prime ministers, past conservative prime ministers have always stood with Israel and recognized the importance of uh, their democracy and how it is threatened and looked at UN votes and either abstained or when necessary positioned themselves in a different way. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised because it was what, only a few weeks ago, the prime minister, though it appeared to be a mistake at the time, called for Israel to have maximum restraint. He was widely condemned at that juncture. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe it was telegraphing where we are now. Uh, but I, I don't think this is going to be as healthy and positive as the liberal framers would have you believe. But, you know, Jordan, obviously, it's a, it's a challenge for any government. But, like, President Biden describes himself as a Zionist, and he warned Israel to stop the indiscriminate bombing, which is a whole level of rhetorical escalation beyond maximum restraint. I mean, indiscriminate bombing is quite the thing to lay on the table. It's coming from the President of the United States. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that the, this is the gap between the the discussion and the rhetoric about Israel having a right to defend itself in accordance with international law and the reality that we're seeing unfold on the ground, which is that you're seeing heavy bombardments in the most densely populated part of the world, uh, where over half of the people are children. And the, and the consequences have been absolutely catastrophic. So I think that certainly Trudeau's not alone in strengthening his tone on this. Uh, I, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people who are more on the pro-Palestinian side asking why it has taken this long. And I think that there are some challenging optics for Trudeau that this comes immediately in the wake of a fairly high-profile story about 
um, Arab donors uh, leaving the Liberal Party. Yeah. And so I think for him, that, you know, that and some of the dissent that we're seeing from his own MPs this week speaks to really the challenge of containing this as an issue. Because, you know, while I agree it's, it's, all, it's really important to have open and honest discussions about this within caucuses, the key is within. It's when mm-hmm. people start taking those concerns and those complaints and those disagreements out to the media that you've crossed into a different area. Right. But, Sherelle, my sense is it's, it's disagreement, not division, if that is the right way to frame it. Like, nobody has left yet. Nobody has threatened to leave yet, as I see it. Watch your sense of how this is playing out inside the caucus. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would kind of disagree with Jordan a little in that I don't think it's bad for there to be this open dissent or disagreement, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, you know, we always kind of needle at MPs who just stick to the party line and, and never, you know, step a toe out of it. But And any MP who, you know, seems to have an independent thought is, you know, tends to be lauded as, you know, brave or unusual or unique. And I think we should see more of that in terms of, hey, I'm... St- I am, yes, I'm a member of this party, and but I still have, you know, my own thoughts, my own mind, my own constituents to represent. That's crazy talk. I, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so now that we're seeing this, we're like, oh, well, this can't stand. We can't stand yeah. for this. And this is something that is very, very real and very, very personal to a lot of people. And had the vote gone the other way, had Canada decided, no, we aren't going to support this resolution at the UN, there would be dissent and dis- division mm-hmm. and or okay. however you want to frame it mm-hmm. from people who do support a ceasefire and those voices we would be hearing more from saying i disagree with what the government has done there have been open letters there have been plenty of voices who are saying this cannot stand canada cannot continue to support uh, you know israel in all of its actions as it fights to defend itself against hamas because of all of these um innocent lives that are being taken so you're never going to have an agreement, I think, on something like this and trying to get that, I think, is going to be impossible. But I don't necessarily think it's a terrible thing that we are seeing it play out publicly. So, so Dan, you know, Canada has abstained in the past uh, because the resolutions mm-hmm. did not contain condemnations of Hamas. This one didn't either, though they did support an attempt to amend it. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to see that Japan and France from the G7 voted for the ceasefire. The UK, Germany, and Italy abstained. The US voted no. Some of our Five Eye partners, New Zealand, Australia, that joint statement, they moved with Canada. It seems that, as Bob Ray was explaining yesterday, the humanitarian situation, the death toll, and domestic pressures you know, in the Canadian population is fueling this. I mean, do you think that is enough? to? Do you think they, they will be able to hold this healthy debate, as you frame it, uh, together and, and stop it from you know, potentially opening up some real fissures inside that caucus? I think that's the most important point to make here is that the world has also changed on these uh, on these issues and this vote in particular is a demonstration of a greater collective action uh, in the world uh, to call for action like this. I do think that the government along with their partners in Australia and New Zealand did a good job managing the politics of this by releasing the joint statement yesterday, an expression of solidarity, uh, but also very clearly and extensively articulating how they would prefer this motion be worded uh, with a lot more nuance and a lot more uh, context added to it. They made the same amendment that you uh, that you spoke about at the UN floor, but I think that additional statement provided some political cover and they worked to manage this. You point out the number of countries that voted differently than they have in the past. Canada is not alone in that. The world is moving on this topic 
topic. I think on the divisions in caucus, Jerome makes a great point. We spent a lot of time on panels like this complaining about the level of party unity or the control from the center of government. Uh, and then when there are moments where MPs are speaking out or expressing individual concerns, we decry it as though it's, you know, everything's falling apart. And we can't have it both ways. Yeah, I, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, yeah no, I, I don't disagree with Dan on that. But again, I think we're understating the level of uh, disappointment, hurt, um, historical dissatisfaction that people, um, Jewish people have, Jewish Canadians yeah. have, people in. And I, I, I think we shouldn't lose that. We can frame it again as a healthy debate. And I agree with everybody. The better to have healthy debates than not. But let's not go past what where the pain is no you're, you're absolutely not wrong and, and this is where, where i want okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is where I, where I wanted to come to next because um the, the wording of that resolution is not the totality of canada's position on this conflict no, that is more properly spl- explained probably in that letter but erwin uh, kotler was sitting right there last night and he says there is a total disconnect with what the prime minister said at a hanukkah ceremony the night before this mm-hmm. vote and he is disappointed uh in his party and former government for the way they voted because a lot of people as you said off the top feel canadian jews and israel feel abandoned by this and certainly mr kotler is more uh, learned and, and versed in this subject than i am so i would agree with him i, I would say there are other things that are frustrating about the vote if not outright disturbing i mean we are have conflict right now with russia and china they supported that particular resolution did we think about that uh the the other issue that i think is is you know shouldn't be lost in this that israel is one of the if not the only democracy in that particular region that's why we've always had steadfast support of it and as you said in your interview a moment ago uh, when you were speaking with the special representative of of the palestinian authority you cited those hamas videos so you know where they talk about this was only the beginning so as much as we're being influenced by global public opinion there's a reality and that hamas reality coming from their own lips is not a pretty one. And if we give them, and I think this is the position of of Israel, which I understand and support, if we are seen to be giving Hamas a leg up as they will frame this, that is not helping anybody. No, understood, but, but Jordan, there is also, like, there is criticism now, and it's not from me, it's from Joe Biden, mm-hmm. of the Netanyahu government suggesting that the coalition is not working That's and right. that it needs change. And, you know, even the president has called what's happening in the West Bank extremism. Yes, settlers, yes, right? absolutely. And it is. And, and you know, for the very first time, they're, they're moving to sanction individuals involved in that violence. Mm-hmm. And I think this, a lot of this speaks to the challenge of, of dealing with this, this horrific events of October 7th within Israel and then the counteroffensive that is. Israel has undertaken, and you're dealing with the, the furthest right government that Israel has ever had. Mm-hmm. And, and Netanyahu, a leader who, uh, for his own political reasons, has every perverse incentive to keep this conflict going. And so I think that that also plays into this and into the challenge that many countries in the West are having now with what would be uh, more traditional, steadfast support of Israel. Okay, I've gone over time, but Sherelle, quick last word from you on this before we move on to the next topic. Just to you know, quickly say that, yes, absolutely, this is a very personal thing for a lot of people in this country, but there are also a lot of Jewish voices who are in support of the ceasefire. There are, of course, the very large organizations and prominent voices that are, right. that are disappointed with the vote and saying, we cannot do this, but we cannot discount as well those other voices who have said, not in my name. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this goes over the next couple of weeks. 
That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.